welcome to the sixth episode of Excellent Excerpts. I'm Doug Jones. In this episode, we will be listening to How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World by Stephen Johnson, Magna Carta, The Birth of Liberty by Dan Jones, Critical Race Theory, an Introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefankic, and Sitting with Elephants, Lessons in Humility from the African Bush by Ronald Dulek. Well, let's get to it. How We Got to Now, Six Innovations That Made the Modern World by Stephen Johnson. Published by Riverhead Books, 2014. Stephen Johnson is the best-selling author of 11 books, including Where Good Ideas Come From, Wonderland, and The Ghost Map. He's the host and co-creator of the Emmy-winning PBS BBC series How We Got to Now and the host of the podcast American Innovations. I'll be reading from Chapter 5, Time. One of the strange properties of the measurement of time is that it doesn't belong neatly to a single scientific discipline. In fact, each leap forward in our ability to measure time has involved a handoff from one discipline to another. The shift from sundials to pendulum clocks relied on a shift from astronomy to dynamics, the physics of motion. The next revolution in time would depend on electromechanics. With each revolution, though, the general pattern remained the same. Scientists discover some natural phenomenon that displays a propensity for keeping equal time that Galileo had observed in the altar lamps. And before long, a wave of inventors and engineers begin using that new tempo to synchronize their devices. In the 1880s, Pierre and Jacques Curie first detected a curious property of certain crystals, including quartz, the very same material that has been so revolutionary for the glassmakers of Murano. Under pressure, these crystals could be made to vibrate at a remarkably stable frequency. This property came to be known as piezoelectricity. The effect was even more pronounced when an alternating current was applied to the crystal. The quartz crystal's remarkable ability to expand and contract in equal time was first exploited by radio engineers in the 1920s who used it to lock radio transmissions to consistent frequencies. In 1928, W.A. Marison of Bell Labs built the first clock that kept time from the regular vibrations of a quartz crystal. Quartz clocks lost or gained only a thousandth of a second per day and were far less vulnerable to atmospheric changes in temperature or humidity, not to mention movement, than pendulum clocks. Once again, the accuracy with which we measured time had increased by several orders of magnitude. For the first few decades after Marison's intention, quartz clocks became the de facto timekeeping devices for scientific or industrial use. Standard U.S. time was kept by quartz clocks starting in the 1930s. But by the 1970s, the technology had gotten cheap enough for a mass market with the emergence of the first quartz-based wristwatches. Today, just about every consumer appliance that has a clock in it, microwaves, alarm clocks, wristwatches, automobile clocks, all run on the equal time of quartz piezoelectricity. The transformation was predictable enough. Someone invents a better clock, and the first iterations are too expensive for consumer use, but eventually the price falls, and the new clock enters mainstream life. No surprise there. Once again, the surprise comes from somewhere else, from some other field that wouldn't initially seem to be at all that dependent on time. 
New ways of measuring create new possibilities for making. With quartz time, that new possibility was computation. A microprocessor is an extraordinary technological achievement on many levels, but few are as essential as this. Computer chips are masters of time and discipline. Think of the coordination needs of the industrial factory. Thousands of short, repetitive tasks performed in proper sequence by hundreds of individuals. A microprocessor requires the same kind of time discipline, only the units being coordinated are bits of information instead of the hands and bodies of mill workers. When Charles Babbage first invented a programmable computer in the middle of the Victorian age, he called the CPU the mill for a reason. And instead of thousands of operations per minute, the microprocessor is executing billions of calculations per second, while shuffling information in and out of other microchips on the circuit board. Those operations are all coordinated by a master clock, now almost without exception made of quartz. This is why tinkering with your computer to make it go faster than it was engineered to run is called overclocking. A modern computer is the assemblage of many different technologies and modes of knowledge. The symbolic logic of programming languages, the electrical engineering of the circuit board, the visual language of interface design. But without the microsecond accuracy of a quartz clock, modern computers would be useless. The accuracy of the quartz clock made its pendulum predecessor seem hopelessly erratic. But it had a similar effect on the ultimate timekeepers, the earth and the sun. Once we started measuring days with quartz clocks, we discovered that the length of the day was not as reliable as we had thought. Days shortened or lengthened in semi-chaotic ways thanks to the drag of the tides on the surface of the planet, wind blowing over mountain ranges, or the inner motion of the Earth's molten core. If we really wanted to keep exact time, we couldn't rely on the Earth's rotation. We needed a better timepiece. Quartz let us see that the seemingly equal times of a solar day weren't nearly as equal as we had assumed. It was, in a way, the death blow to the pre-Copernican universe. Not only was the Earth not the center of the universe, but its rotation wasn't even consistent enough to define a day accurately. A block of vibrating sand could do the job much better. Magna Carta, The Birth of Liberty, by Dan Jones. Published by Penguin Books, 2016. Dan Jones is the author of The Plantagenets, The Warrior Kings and the Queen Who Made England, a number one international bestseller and New York Times bestseller, and War of the Roses, which charts the story of the fall of the Plantagenet dynasty and the improbable rise of the Tudors. He writes and presents the popular Netflix series Secrets of the Great British Castles. I'll be reading from Chapter 11, England Under Siege. Ever since Henry II, successive Plantagenet kings had sought to increase the number and strength of the castles under royal control. Some were built from scratch. 
Others were repaired or refortified. Many more were simply seized from their owners. From the time of the Great War of 1173-74, when large numbers of castles were taken into the king's possession as punishment for rebellion, around 50% of the fortresses in England were held by the crown. John controlled well over 100 castles in England. They ranged from relatively modest and simple military bases to the huge edifices of Dover, Corf, Odaham, Kenilworth, and the Tower of London. He spent vast sums on improving his castles, particularly in the frontier regions of the southeast, the Welsh marshes, the northern borders with Scotland. He invested £2,000 on Scarborough and more than £1,000 on each of Kenilworth, Narsborough, and Odenham. Castle building was at times the greatest single cost that the crown's revenues had to bear. To John, as to his brother and father, the massive expense was more than just a matter of bravado and status. Castles were the hard currency of politics. They served as royal houses, prisons, treasure stores, garrisons, and centers of local government. To possess a castle was to control the area around it, and to hold a castle with the king's permission was a mark of royal favor. To hold a castle against the king was an outright declaration of war. Who exactly had the right to keep Rochester Castle was a matter of some disagreement. It had been erected for the king of Gundolf, bishop of Rochester, between 1087 and 1089, in lieu of payment of a debt, and it consisted, like most castles of its age, of a huge, squat, rectangular stone keep surrounded by powerful walls and an outer bailey, a well-defended area containing outhouses, workshops, servants' quarters, and animal sheds. The walls were built from the local hard, blue-gray Kentish limestone known as ragstone. Like any good castle, Rochester was well-situated, set inside a curve of the river Medway, and further protected to the south by a hill and to the north and east by a ditch. Besieging a castle was an undertaking theoretically weighted in favor of the besieged. By the early 13th century, most English castles were built in stone, not from timber, as had been the case before the Norman conquest, and could therefore easily resist attack by fire, arrows, crossbow bolts, stones, spears, axes, and almost every other small arm known to the Christian mind. Once a large and well-maintained castle was secured, it could be held by a relatively limited number of men for a considerable length of time. Even if the outer walls were breached, itself no easy task, the towering stone keeps that were characteristic of Plantagenet castles were themselves very difficult to assail successfully. Defended as they were by ditches, thick-walled towers, and tiny slitted windows from which missiles and arrows could easily be aimed, but through which they could seldom be successfully returned. The lowest doors on castle keeps were usually on the first floor rather than at ground level. When a castle came under attack, its defenders would simply haul up or even burn the wooden ladder that gave access to the door so that it could be neither stormed nor battered down with a ram. Stones, arrows, boiling liquids, and red-hot sand could be tipped onto the heads of attackers, making any attempt to scale a castle's defenses using ladders or scaffolds very dangerous. All of this meant, more often than not, a castle would fall to a siege, not because its defenses failed, 
but because the will, the health, or the stomachs of the defenders gave out first. Siege warfare was the most important form of conflict in the Middle Ages, from Western Europe to China and Mongolia, where in 1215 the dreaded warlord Temujin, better known as Genghis Khan, had successfully besieged and massacred the population of Zongdu, modern Beijing. Whereas pitched battles were dreadfully uncertain affairs, as John had found to his cost at Bouvain in July of the previous year, sieges were regular and somewhat more predictable. They proceeded according to centuries of military science and were governed, or semi-governed at any rate, by a code of chivalric conduct under which deals could be struck between besiegers and besieged to determine the terms of engagement. Pre-siege agreements would typically state the length of time that a siege would be held in hope of relief before the garrison either formally surrendered to be treated with mercy or held out until it was stormed and slaughtered. The wisdom that informed the conduct of siege warfare in Europe dated from classical times, and the writings of men like the 4th century A.D. Roman military writer Vegetius and the 1st century B.C. military engineer Vitruvius were collected and studied in the courts and royal libraries of medieval Europe. The fact that sieges were scientifically and partially rule-bound, however, did not mean that they were civilized. Fierce and ingenious tools and tactics were employed on both sides, and famous sieges tended to produce infamous tales of ghastly privations inflicted on the attackers and defenders alike. It was said that at the Siege of Constantinople, 717-18, the Arab besiegers had been in such a sorry condition that they had been forced to eat human flesh and human feces pounded together into patties and cooked. Perhaps this was a symbolic exaggeration designed to invoke the horror rather than the actuality of the siege, but similarly vile stories abounded elsewhere in history. Vikings besieging Chester in 918 had been driven back when defenders dropped boiling ale and water on the attackers and threw live beehives at them, so that their skin blistered and peeled from their flesh and their hands and feet swelled up with painful stings. John's grandfather, Geoffrey Plantagenet, Count of Anjou, was said to have created the legendary potion known as Greek fire by mixing together nut oil and hemp flax, which he blasted from a catapult when he was attacking a castle at Montreux-Belay on the frontiers between Anjou and Men. The great 12th century Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa was especially adept at siege terror tactics. His troops were said to have played football with their enemies' severed heads and tortured captured defenders by scalping them or cutting off their hands and feet to provide amusement and relief from the boredom that naturally accompanied such an attritional method of warfare. Cruel and unusual devices were deployed to try to break sieges, Beyond the conventional siege engines such as ladders, scaling towers, belfries, battering rams, and catapults, there was a degree of biological and psychological warfare that could sink to great depravity. Rotting corpses, animal and human, were flung into castles to cause disgust or dunked into water sources to spread disease. During sieges in which non-combatants had been ejected from the castle or town in order to reduce the number of hungry mouths among defenders, it was deemed perfectly acceptable under the rules of warfare for the besieging army to trap the unarmed civilians in no man's land within view of the castle and allow them to starve to death. 
taunting, torment, and creative displays of despicable cruelty were all used to grind down the minds and wills of those behind the walls and encourage them to give up as quickly as possible. Critical Race Theory, an Introduction, by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefankic. Published by New York University Press, 2012. Richard Delgado is John J. Sparkman, Chair of Law at the University of Alabama and one of the founders of Critical Race Theory. Jean Stefankic is Professor and Clement Research Affiliate at the University of Alabama School of Law. This is a hot topic now, so I thought I'd read from the introduction, chapter one, Basic Tenets of Critical Race Theory. What do critical race theorists believe? Probably not every writer would subscribe to every tenet set out in this book, but many would agree on the following propositions. First, racism is ordinary, not aberrational. Normal science, the usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. Second, most would agree that our system of white over color ascendancy serves important purposes, both psychic and material, for the dominant group. The first feature, ordinariness, means that racism is difficult to address or cure because it is not acknowledged. Colorblind or formal conceptions of equality, expressed in rules that insist only on treatment that is the same across the board, can thus remedy only the most blatant forms of discrimination, such as mortgage redlining, an immigration dragnet in a food processing plant that targets Latino workers, or the refusal to hire a black PhD rather than a white college dropout that do stand out and attract our attention. The second feature, sometimes called interest convergence or material determinism, adds a further dimension. Because racism advocates the interests of both white elites materially and working-class Caucasians psychically, large segments of society have little incentive to eradicate it. Consider, for example, Derrick Bell's shocking proposal, discussed in Chapter 2, that Brown v. the Board of Education, considered a great triumph of civil rights litigation, may have resulted more from the self-interest of elite whites than from a desire to help blacks. A third theme of critical race theory, that social construction thesis, holds that race and races are products of social thought and relations, not objective, inherent, or fixed. They correspond to no biological or genetic reality. Rather, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient. People with common origins share certain physical traits, of course, such as skin color, physique, and hair texture. But these constitute only an extremely small portion of their genetic endowment, are dwarfed by that which we have in common, and have little or nothing to do with distinctly human higher-order traits, such as personality, intelligence, and moral behavior. That society frequently chooses to ignore these scientific truths, create races, and endow them with pseudo-permanent characteristics is of great interest to critical race theory. Another somewhat more recent Development concerns differential racialization and its many consequences. Critical writers in law, as well as in social science, have drawn attention to the ways 
The dominant society racializes different minority groups at different times in response to shifting needs such as the labor market. At one period, for example, society may have had little use for blacks, but much need for Mexican or Japanese agricultural workers. At another time, the Japanese, including citizens of long standing, may have been in intense disfavor and removed to war relocation camps, while society cultivated other groups of color for jobs in war industry or as cannon fodder on the front. Popular images and stereotypes of various minority groups shift over time as well. In one era, a group of color may be depicted as happy go lucky, simple minded, and content to serve white folks. A little later, when conditions change, that very same group may appear in cartoons, movies, and other cultural scripts as menacing, brutish, and out of control, requiring close monitoring and repression. In one age, Middle Eastern people are exotic, fetishized figures wearing veils, wielding curved swords, and summoning genies from lamps. In another era, they emerge as fanatical, religiously crazed terrorists bent on destroying America and killing innocent citizens. Closely related to differential racialization, the idea that each race has its own origins and ever evolving history, is the notion of intersectionality and anti essentialism. No person has a single, easily stated unitary identity. A white feminist may also be Jewish or working class or a single mother. An African American activist may be male or female, gay or straight. A Latino may be a Democrat, a Republican, or even black, perhaps because that person's family hails from the Caribbean. An Asian may be a recently arrived Hmong of rural background and unfamiliar with mercantile life, or a fourth generation Chinese with a father who is a university professor and a mother who operates a business. Everyone has potentially conflicting. Overlapping identities, loyalties, and allegiances. A final element concerns the notion of unique voice of color. Coexisting in somewhat uneasy tension with anti essentialism, the voice of color thesis holds that because of their different histories and experiences with oppression, black, American Indian, Asian, and Latino, Latina writers and thinkers may be able to communicate to their white counterparts. Matters that whites are unlikely to know. Minority status, in other words, brings with it a presumed competence to speak about race and racism. The legal storytelling movement urges black and brown writers to recount their experiences with racism and the legal system and to apply their own unique perspectives to assess law's master narratives. This topic, too, is taken up later in this book. Sitting with Elephants Lessons in Humility from the African Bush by Ronald Dulick, published by Waldorf Publishing 2020. Ronald Dulick is John R. Miller Professor of Management at Culver House College of Business. He and his wife purchased a remote South African bush house, and this book tells that story. I'm reading from Chapter 12 Sitting with Elephants and Chasing Leopards. Epigraph. Only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. T.S. Eliot. 
The end of the year lion encounter provided a dramatic conclusion to our previous visit, yet the focus of our off-season conversations continued to be on the elephant that I had successfully approached. We even began to refer to her as our elephant. Initially, we wondered whether we would ever see our elephant again. As the discussions proceeded, however, we came to the conclusion that the encounter with our elephant had probably run its course. I had successfully approached her, but had missed the opportunity to sit beside her when she was sleeping. It was one of those opportunities in life that once missed never comes again. Elephants travel up to 50 kilometers a day and migrate thousands of kilometers in a year. The range that elephants travel is so vast that two or more years often pass before they return to a previously visited location. We thus returned the following year with the hope that we would get to see elephants in our backyard, but we had little expectation that we would see our elephant again. Our main hope was that we might someday see her while we were traveling together in the Kruger. To our delight, a herd of 20 elephants briefly visited the back fence within a week of our arrival. We searched to identify our elephant, but we were unable to do so. The next day, however, a smaller herd of elephants came to the fence. Dear Dan and Laura, the African sojourners are online. Highlights so far. The first, and by far the most impressive, was the return of the elephant. Yesterday, Friday, we were cleaning the house and getting ready for the Stricklands to visit. I looked outside while sweeping and saw an elephant standing right beside the fence. She was munching on tree branches and staring at the house. I looked carefully and realized that it was our elephant. The tusk alignment, the body markings and the distinct cut on her ear confirmed her identity. I was excited to see her again. I got Mom, and we both went out and sat on the back step. We did not, of course, stare at her. We looked down and only occasionally glanced up. Our elephant kept looking at us and seemed to be waiting for something. I thought that perhaps she wanted me to approach, but I was not at all certain that was her message. One must renew old friendships with caution especially when that friendship is with a wild African elephant. Then, lo and behold, a baby elephant trots out of the bush about two meters behind our elephant. The baby could only have been a few weeks old. Following the baby was another young elephant, probably a few years older, and a larger full-grown elephant. Mom quickly caught the gist of what was going on with the observation. She's showing us her family. And by gosh, I think Mom was right. After the family passed, our elephant looked at us, backed up a few steps, and then headed with her brood toward the river. A shiver went down my spine after I realized what had happened. A second highlight happened earlier today. The Stricklands left today about 11. Lonnie and Kitty are always gracious visitors, and they gave us some young impala lilies as departing gifts. We placed the lilies on the back stope. Later in the afternoon, we decided to take a ride in the Kruger, along the Sabi River. We planned to exit at Pilablani Gate around 5.30 p.m. and then drive 15 kilometers to Hazyview to have dinner. We saw no animals on the drive, but the scenery along the river made for a very enjoyable drive. As we were leaving the bush house, a troop of baboons darted across the driveway. I shouted, you bastards, the house is locked. Then I returned and double and triple checked the doors to make sure that what I had said was true. You have probably already guessed what happened. When we returned from Hazyview, we found dirt strewn all across the back stope. 
The baboons had pulled the impala lilies from their containers and had eaten the roots of each plant. I decided to clean the mess before going to sleep. As I was sweeping dirt from the back stope, I heard water running. The sound came from the side of the house, not the back area where the Sabi River flows. A little investigation led to the discovery that the baboons, those bastards, had turned on the water in the outside sink. It was running full blast. There is, however, one note of joy within this scenario. The baboons only turned on the hot water, so perhaps they burnt their blood-sucking mouths to a crisp. By the way, as you may remember, the elephants knocked down the fence around the lapa and the outside shower while we were gone last year. Benny, the head of maintenance, rebuilt it. He did a fantastic job. It looks wonderful. We now even have a lapa door that latches. I hope you folks are well. Love, Dad, the nursery curator. P.S. Five extra dollars in the will to the first of you who can explain the complex pun of the above signature. A visit from the elephant herd this early in the season rekindled our enthusiasm for future visits. We wondered if the elephant had, we had labeled ours would return again. Additionally, if she did return, we wondered if I would get a second chance to sit with her. The presence of those babies complicated matters. I wasn't sure that she wanted me close when they were nearby. We also wondered if our elephant would return alone, with the herd or with this small splinter group. In only a few days, we had answers to these questions. Dear Laura and Dan, This morning we went to Protea for breakfast and then headed back to the bush house. Our plans were to rest a bit, then drive into Hazy View for supplies. When we got back from the Protea, Mom noticed some elephants far off in the Kruger. We watched for a few minutes and noticed that they were moving toward our house, so we waited. Soon, in what seemed like no time at all, we had a herd of 12 elephants, two of which were babies, standing in the open space beside our fence. Three of the adult elephants had fallen asleep, as had the two babies. The herd obviously felt safe. Our elephant was not in that group. It is highly probable, however, that this was part of her herd. I base that observation on the knowledge that herds tend to disperse and then come back together. These elephants seem too comfortable with the setting not to have been here before. Additionally, the two babies looked very much like the ones we had seen earlier in the presence of our elephant. I felt a strong calling to take the next step, so I rose from my chair and began walking slowly toward the herd. I kept my eyes cast downward as I traveled. I did, of course, surreptitiously glance upward to make sure I wasn't disturbing the herd. None of the elephants moved, nor did any of them seem bothered. My goal was to get to a tree that was about five meters from the herd. I sat down once I got to the tree. Each of the adult elephants looked at me, even the three that were sleeping. It seems that elephants don't sleep soundly. They wake up, glance around, and then close their eyes and go back to sleep. I kept looking at the ground and only occasionally glanced at the herd. No one seemed disturbed by my presence. The situation seemed safe, especially since the babies were situated toward the back of the herd. It did, though, seem important to remain in a sitting position. To stand would have upset the balance of the arrangement. After about 15 minutes, I decided it was time to get closer, so I started scooting forward on my butt. That is why I'm still pulling thistles from my pants. I moved slowly but deliberately with my eyes on the ground. Four of the elephants watched, but none gave any signal of being bothered. In the end, I managed to butt-scoot all the way to the fence. 
At this point, it seemed intelligent to stop. The presence of the fence seemed to give solace to the elephants and to me as well. I had no desire to go under it, nor would it have been wise to do so. The bottom line, no pun intended on my thorn-filled butt, is that I managed to sit approximately one meter away from a magnificent herd of wild African elephants. The entire herd seemed unperturbed by my presence. It was mesmerizing. I sat with them for about an hour. I have to note, though, that the feeling of sitting with the herd was quite different from that which occurred last year when I approached an elephant and withstood a mock charge. Whereas last year's feeling was similar to landing a fighter jet on an aircraft carrier, the adrenaline was over the top. This year's feeling was one of extreme calm. The adrenaline glands were in neutral. Sitting there felt natural, almost homey. Although I was cautious, I never felt afraid or threatened. The elephants seemed comfortable with me as well. Eventually, the adult elephants awoke, as did one of the babies. The other baby was still asleep. Gradually, in no particular rush, the adult elephants began wandering away from the fence and moving slowly back into the Kruger. Two adult elephants stayed close to the sleeping baby. After she woke, one of the two pushed the baby with her trunk, and the threesome walked off sprightly in the direction of the herd. My feeling after the event concluded was one of thankfulness. I felt as if I had gotten a second chance after missing last year's opportunity. It is not often that life hands you a second chance. When it does, it's a good idea to grab it. Even better, I realized that this second chance may have been better than the first one that I missed. I got to sit with an entire herd, not just a single elephant. Perhaps it pays to wait. I hope you folks are well. Love, Dad. He who sits with elephants. That brings us to the end of this episode of Excellent Excerpts. I hope something has been interesting. Thank you for listening.